Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Disney doubling down on theme parks. Has the House of Mouse lost its golden touch on entertainment? The New York Times' Jim Stewart. There's a lot going on there, but the unfortunate bottom line here is that they're all diminishing assets. Power to the work people. The labor movements shaking America and the changes coming to the job with author Joanne Littman. Look, if we were to create the workplace from scratch today, I don't think it would look anything like five days, 40 hours a week on the premises. Plus the rest of today's stories that got us squawking. A tobacco giant singing a new tune, Microsoft on gaming, and Elon Musk's Neuralink looking for volunteers. I mean, rockets and EVs. And, I mean, it's, Brain surgery. I, mean, this I, guy I didn't is, realize they were looking insane. for It's Wednesday, September 20th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is off today. You want to know who we are? No Jeeves! No Justice! No Jeeves! No Justice! No Jeeves! No Justice! And an update now on the auto worker strike. Uh, late last night, Ford reached a deal with its Canadian labor union to avoid a strike, which would have been on both sides of the border. The deal now must be ratified by the union's 5,600 members uh, employed by Ford uh, in Ontario, in that province. The Canadian union then plans to use that Ford deal as a framework for negotiations with GM and Stellantis. Uh, Meantime, in the U.S., the Biden administration is no longer sending two key officials to Detroit uh, this week to help broker a deal between the automakers and the big three auto companies. President Biden said last week, uh, he would send senior advisor Gene Sperling and acting Labor Secretary Julie Su, but the administration and UAW mutually agreed it would be better uh, to speak virtually via Zoom. Yeah. UAW President Sean Fain told MSNBC on Monday that he does not see a major role for the White House uh, in resolving the dispute. The other day we had a former NLRB official on who was obviously appointed by a Democrat. She was very pro-union uh, when she was on, and she kind of snapped when I said the White House is sending some, some people to negotiate. They're not negotiating. They're just advisors. Well, this is going. where the rub came in, because yeah. Sean Fain has been very clear from the beginning and has, has told the administration, stay out of this. We don't want you to say anything. We don't want you involved. Yeah. Let us do what we're supposed to be doing, which is using collective bargaining to go through this. So it, it's been pushy because President Biden has called himself repeatedly the most labor-friendly president in the history of the United States. So there's elect- and an election coming up Well, he still gets the stiff strike. arm from the UAW. Yeah, they're mad they at don't, him. They don't want it. They don't want him involved. And, and you can, it, anyway, so it's, it's a mutually, you know, mutually agreed. Well, and Trump, a Republican, uh, might go and start walking the picket line. That would not be, as a populist, that would not be uh, out of the question to see something like that. Michigan is an important it. swing state, and yeah. it was one that he... Actually, President Trump performed pretty well. In but the uh, the individual that we had on the other day, she she kept using the word fair in terms of negotiations, which is fair that is really overused by a lot of people. And it you know we want everything to be fair. Obviously, egalitarian. I don't know. Uh, everything equal. Fairness in outcomes. I don't know. You, you need fair opportunity. But, but nobody likes inequality. Fair, nobody but, likes. I know. But when she problem. when you keep. Everybody keeps with the, well, the CEOs are making a lot. The CEOs, if you raise the, the 
too much if it's an exorbitant increase in 100,000 employees. For, it's like trying to tax the rich. You can tax the rich till they have no money and you still don't have enough. There's not enough so of them. get back to the inequality. One CEO making $20 million isn't equivalent to billions of dollars of cost increases. But the optics matter. Uh, but do that's, they? Why asked, that's why I asked Sean Fain the but other I'm day. Just, what when the NLRB people, are, are, when they're saying the same things you hear from the Bernie bros, people that are on the NLRB, then you know that it might be. They're all politically appointed, so it depends on the administration. Right, um, which is why voting matters. Elon Musk's brain implant startup, Neuralink, is recruiting patients for a clinical trial. In a blog post, the company said that it's looking for patients with quadriplegia because of spinal cord injury or ALS for this trial. Neuralink plans to evaluate the safety and functionality of its tool, allowing people to manipulate external devices with their minds. The FDA granted early approval for Neuralink's trial back in May, and the company says that it has also received approval from the hospital where it will perform those first sur surgeries, but it did not name the hospital. I mean, rockets and EVs and I mean, it's, brain surgery and Neuralinks to con to use thoughts to control movement. I mean, this I, guy. I didn't is, realize they were looking insane. for patients with ALS right. or with spinal cord right. injuries. That's where it seems like okay, that would be a then very you would do exactly it, right if you're going to have a brain implant. I mean, if you're asking for volunteers. People who for a brain implant, you say, have to okay, have a need. Is, a you definitely have to have a real need. But it's just so amazing that I mean, he he in Walter's book, he wants to do you know when we run out of planet, he wants to have a new place for us for humanity to be able to move. In addition to Mars, yeah, yeah. in addition to all these other, it's just yeah. wild. That's crazy. And the idea that he has the ability to shoot rockets up and then land them again and reuse them, you know, it's, it's and then which makes it more affordable, which is why you can go ahead and do or something. have an, an remember what we used to, on the Simpsons? They used to hi, I have an electrical, I have an EV, and it, would, yeah. it was going like that, it goes zero to to sixty in one point nine seconds or something. I mean, it's it's pretty cool, pretty amazing. Philip Morris is reportedly considering options around its push into healthcare. That's according to the Wall Street Journal, the tobacco giant. Not much of a giant, I don't think any, I guess in the rest of the world. Considering uh, selling a stake in its biggest pharmaceutical unit, Vectura Group, uh, which specializes in inhaled medicines. Uh, it bought that and two other pharma companies in 2021 uh, for more than $2 billion as part of a plan to diversify from cigarette sales, which uh, I don't know. I'm like J.R. Ewing at this point. You know, former, I see someone smoking, I just like, what is the story? Who still smokes in the United States? Fewer and fewer people, but like probably handful, people who got right? addicted to it when right, they were Right, 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 but stop. You knew some of these stop, things. I'm just telling you, stop, stop. We are learning more about Microsoft's growth strategy for gaming thanks to documents that were recently published inadvertently on a court website. Executives in 2022 predicted gaming growth would come from advertising and mobile purchases over the next several years. They predicted that gaming revenue would double to $36 billion by the year 2030, compared to an $18 billion forecast for 2022. That information was included in a presentation that was posted to a court website until Microsoft told the court that those documents contained non-public information. Then the documents were removed from view. 
The documents also describe plans for a new Xbox console that's timed for a 2028 release. A separate file listed features of updated versions of the current Xbox series and an updated controller all slated for 2024. In a post on X, Microsoft's gaming CEO said that it's unfortunate that the company's work was shared in that way because much has changed and there's much to be excited about right now and in the future. He said, we will share the real plans when we are ready. I'd say that too. Yeah, I don't know if this uh, X thing is working. In, in a I don't post, like calling it X. In a post on X? Yeah, I like I mean, Twitter. I, I think well, I'm just, it's a post on Twitter. Yeah, I can't think they, can he do the oh, no. overall thing be X and then well, this Twitter is... Twitter is now X. That's the thing. They, if you look at the app, but it sounded it sounds, it sounds dumb, I know. In a post on X. It's like the name, it's the word that can't Look, be... I still call it on, Google it, rather than Alphabet. It's in a post on Voldemort, <laughs> you can't say... He whose name cannot be spoken. Right, in a post on X, we're talking about Twitter. This is probably as good a time as any to remind you to follow us on the platform formerly known as Twitter, X. We are at Squawk CNBC there. Cheese will be next. We've still got more to come. Up next, Disney's new park-centric strategy. New York Times columnist Jim Stewart. Theme parks are not going to be some kind of, you know, perpetual double-digit growth strategy. So then the question is, you know, what about streaming? And, you know, it's not looking at good there. Squawk Pod is back after this. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand by, Joe, in five seconds. Four... Three, two, one. Is Mike Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick. Andrew is off. Disney will nearly double its 10-year investment in theme parks, cruises, and resorts to around $60 billion. The move underscores a dramatic shift in the company's business model, uh, which used to rely heavily on media and entertainment. Disney stock is down over 24% since January. Joining us now is Jim Stewart, a New York Times columnist. Is there, I, I mean, I guess they're going to sell other things, Jim, so the, the rumors are true. We just don't know to whom or, or when it happens. Yeah, or at what price. Um, you know, as Iger sort of shocked everyone on, on this network uh, when he he, he made those comments at uh, at Sun Valley, where you know suddenly he put on the block the core of the of the Disney media empire, including their once you know incredible cash cow ESPN. So we have a great brand. We've had a great business, and we want to stay in that business. That said, we're going to be open-minded there too, not necessarily about spinning ESPN off, but about looking for strategic partners that could either help us with distribution or content, but we want to stay in the sports business. The, the question is, you know, uh, we, we saw not too long ago that Paramount pulled back and stopped trying to sell the BET network. There's doesn't seem to be a lot of demand for these legacy cable channels, and that's a big chunk of, of what he's putting out there. Now, ESPN is kind of in a category of its own. It's not clear they want to get rid of it entirely. They want to bring on partners, so they want to rope in more of the sports gambling thing. There's a lot going on there, but the the un, un, unfortunate bottom line here is that they're all diminishing assets. The you know They're deteriorating, I think, now faster than many analysts had thought as people move increasingly to streaming and as 
Disney and its competitors are still struggling to make money out of streaming. That's what occurred to me, Jim. They're not saying we're going to sell these legacy media uh, assets and invest in streaming. They said we're going to sell these and invest in like physical experiences, <laughs> cruises and, and theme parks and everything else. So what how are we going to digest media entertainment in the future, if Disney has no idea what, what we want or how to go, to go about it, I'm not going to a theme park. I still need to, I, I still turn on my TV and look for entertainment, Jim. Well, I have to say it is kind of a shock that, you know, we're here talking about Disney and, and theme parks and theme parks as the subject of their big capital investment and possibly future growth. I mean, nobody has really focused on theme parks for a long time. Now they have, no one has thought of it as a growth business. It is it's true. They have um, profited immensely from the post-COVID bounce back in demand. And I think it is a it's a tribute to the appeal of that brand that, you know, once COVID was over, a lot of families' top priorities were to get their kids to one of the Disney theme parks. And, you know, they also have become much better at exploiting demand and adjusting price, but they push prices up a lot. And certainly the anecdotal evidence recently has been the parks are not full. So now what, what do they do to make money in theme parks? They're only, it's not a complicated business. You either, you have to stoke demand, you have to increase supply, or you raise prices or some combination of all of those. So they're pushing on those levers, but I, it's hard to see, you know, where they're going to go now. They do have to invest. You've got to put the new things in there. I, they probably shouldn't have had a frozen attraction in there even before now. These things do date, they do need maintenance, and they're talking about expanding. And I think that Cruise ship business seems to be doing well. Maybe there is some uh, some growth potential there, but theme parks are not going to be some kind of you know perpetual double digit growth strategy. So then the question is, you know, what about streaming? And you know, it's not looking that good there. Well, nothing's looking good. And, and if Becky Quick had ten things for for a, a growth future, uh, cruises would be like dead last. <laughs> Becky, I mean, she thinks that you know, I'm not everyone. There's norovirus on every surface of every, and you know, they. And search by the way, it. Joe agrees with me. I do. It's this. the same water. They don't, you know, they're out there. They don't have. You know, there's nothing going in. It's what's already there, and there's 4,000 people parks already there. Huh? Parks but, I get, cruises not so much. Well, parks I don't get because you need to feed the beast with the new Simpsons ride or with the new. So yeah, they're, they're not, not going to get rid of the studios. No, they're not going to get rid of the studios, but they're not going to have. You, you can't use any of the old Disney content because it's all canceled. So you By the can't way, the use Simpsons that. Stuff they're is not going to make it. Universal, at Universal Studios. I'm plugging Universal. We, they're going to continue to make some new content. But if Disney's not going to make... Okay, so they're going to continue to feed the beast with new content with seven magical creatures replacing Sleepy and Drowsy <laughs> or, or whatever. So I, th this company is lost, Jim. Is it lost? I mean, well, you wrote the, the I, book I, look, on it. Look, I'm not going to go that far. I mean, they are, they are confronting, you know, an incredibly difficult, um, you know, broad environment here. I mean, you, you mentioned that making more movies, more product. I mean, that's another challenge they've got. There's a lot of tr concern here that the superhero formula is, is getting stale. It's been going on now for decades. Disney mastered that with Marvel. But the recent ones haven't done all that well. So the movie division, which you know was never a huge you know growth factory, but did extremely well, is now also looking troubled. It's like there's nothing on the on their spectrum that isn't you know having. Why it's eighty? That's why it's eighty dollars down down from two hundred. I, I, do you remember when uh, Universal or when um, Comcast bought Universal? 
uh, from NBC. It was almost like the theme parks were, yeah, we're going, we're going to get that too. And it turned out to be a great asset. And, and there are a lot of quarters, uh, not during the pandemic necessarily, but there are a lot of quarters where that was like a profit center. But it wasn't the rationale for buying it in, in the first place. And I, it's just so weird that that's where Disney's going to place all of its bets on the future. Yeah, well, you know, it's like, like Disney didn't buy uh, ABC to get ESPN either. That was just kind of an afterthought. And ESPN became their great growth driver for, for many, many years. And Universal, I mean, the secret to their success is they made the brilliant move of getting Harry Potter into the theme parks and developing a really mm -hmm. great yeah, first-rate um, thing. And Disney let that slip out of its grasp. So uh, they're still harvesting the results of some of, some of those decisions. Um, I mean, look, theme parks is is a is a solid business, and you know, Disney. It's good they've got the cash flow given the situation in streaming. I think, though, in both areas, you're seeing they're struggling to figure out what's the right pricing strategy, and that's what they're wrestling with in streaming now. The growth is clearly topping off there. How high can they push those numbers? But the number, the fall off, and the subscribers to Disney streaming suggests that they're kind of hitting a ceiling there too. So simply raising prices is not going to be the, the magic bullet I here. just don't know how we go from the golden age of content and it, it was going to be, it was going to last forever. And every talented writer and, and everyone out there was, was just, it was going to be the good times. We're going to, we're, we're really rolling. And how did, we, now we're, we're streaming doesn't work. Legacy media doesn't work. Everybody's on strike because of AI. It, it's a mess. Jim, and I, how does it work? <laughs> Isn't it? You need well, to write it's, a book. It's an, it's an industry upheaval, and you know we've been talking about it now for for years. And it's finally, I mean, the, it's really clear now that this is one of the great. You know, streaming is one of the great disruptive forces in in business history. I mean, I'm not going to say maybe it's the same as the introduction of the automobile or the internet, but it's a it is a massive. A shift in this industry and that golden age, which you know was great, and I think that's why the riders are upset now that the you know that gravy train has left the station. Um, but it's basic economics and, and business. Somebody you can't lose billions of dollars quarter after quarter. I mean, those numbers have been staggering. I was kind of surprised that Wall Street was a little slow to wake up. That all they cared about was subscriber numbers. And they were racking up losses of billions of dollars a quarter, Disney being in the forefront of that. I mean, Netflix is making money, and presumably Amazon is making money. These are not the legacy media companies. I don't think we have yet seen a major legacy media company successfully navigate this transition to this new, much more tech-driven era. But the industry is not going to go away. I mean, the demand is there. Consumers love it. They're just going to have to end up paying more for it. Yeah, there's a. I, I, it's not like the auto industry, but I think about the legacy auto industry. The the big gas guzzlers are funding the transition to EVs, which nobody wants except for Teslas. And sooner or later, that, it's like you're getting rid of something and sort of monetizing it, and that's going to be gone. But the future doesn't look so great with what you're trying to transition into, or you could definitely screw it up. It's like the same thing. Is it? You know, it, it is very similar in the sense that the cable networks are the old or the gas guzzlers of media, and they're like they're they're not even. I still as love my cable, Jim. I still love my cable, and I like on demand. And I, I used to do a little stream. I don't know. I want it all. I, I want it all, Jim. But another well, you can book have it here. You're going to have to pay for it. Right. There's another book here, Stuart. There's another book. There is. All right. Start working. Thank you. Get I get AI to do it.
Next on Squawk Pod, working harder for shorter? The labor unrest behind the summer and now fall of strikes and the push for a four-day week. Author Joanne Littman. There's been research, first in Iceland, then in the UK, then globally, on looking at four-day work weeks elsewhere. And they have found that productivity has remained the same. Employee happiness has skyrocketed. Employee mental health has improved. What we're willing and not willing to do for our employers. There's no way I'm doubling my work week to 32 hours. There's no way. It'd be less than twice as much. (laughs) This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. It's back to school and back to the office for some of us, but it's back to the picket line for many others. Recently on the Squawk set, we explored the undercurrents of unrest among America's workforce with our gang, Joe, Becky, and Andrew. Andrew kicks things off. America, well, it is on strike. Three major unions in the United States on picket lines driven by demands for higher wages and increased transparency. This is upending expectations in the power dynamic between workers and employers. Joining us right now is Joanne Littman, Yale University lecturer and a CNBC contributor. Joanne, we've been talking all morning, frankly, for many weeks, if not months now, about this sort of shift in power as, as it relates to workers. And we were just talking as it as it was about what's happening in the economy and frankly how workers have not kept up uh, with the rate of inflation and, and therefore are now asking for more. The question I think we're all trying to, to get to is what what does an equilibrium look like? Are we going to be seeing many, many more strikes like this? Um, do you see this as an idiosyncratic issue? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I, I do not see this as an idiosyncratic issue. I actually think we are at an inflection point right now, looking at the future of work. And it's not just about the wages, though you are correct that there's this widening gap between those at the top and the rest of workers. And we've seen it in with the UAW, for example, we know that on an inflation-adjusted basis, those workers are actually seeing a decline. And they're looking at the CEOs who have had a 40% increase since the financial crisis, who are all making over $20 million a year. But I think the bigger picture here, and this is really important, is about the future of work. And that has to do with the compensation, but it also has to do with the working hours, with what does the work week look like? Um, what does What are expectations? Uh, from work. And this all comes out of COVID, frankly. You've got a combination of coming out of the pandemic where office workers who had remote and hybrid opportunities are now being called back to the office and they're saying, wait a second, they're rebelling against it. Uh, They don't want to be back in five days a week. Um, You've got that uh, combined with this tight labor market, which means employees have the upper hand. So there is a a rebalancing, I think, of the workplace. And I do think it is a larger inflection point than simply the the previous years we have seen workers go on strike simply for wages. And so that's the other question, which is in this grand bargain or negotiation between the issue of money versus time, how does that play itself out? And which do you think ultimately becomes more important? I don't, this is my own take, I think people still want money even more than the time, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, right now, people want both. And uh, because the market is tight, they are in more of a position to bargain for both. But I just want to point out one thing. Um, just let's look, for example, at the four-day work week idea. And we see a ton of eye rolling with the auto workers who are asking for this four-day work week. But, you know, in truth, 
we should take it a little bit more seriously when you look at the research that's been done, right? There's been research first in Iceland, then in the UK, then globally, on looking at four-day work weeks elsewhere. And they have found that productivity has remained the same. Employee happiness has skyrocketed. Uh, employee mental health has improved as well. So, you know, I, I do think we're we're going to have to rethink how we look at time in the office. I, I was looking, uh, you know, I wrote recently my book Next, um, and one of the things that I was looking at was sort of this, the historical overview of how we view work. And we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of Henry Ford rolling back the work week to five days. And at that time, that was considered radical to roll it back from six or seven days to five. So I think we are at another sort of historical moment here where it's every, everything's on the table. I mean, face it, look, if we were to create the workplace from scratch today, I don't think it would look anything like five days, 40 hours a week on the premises, but we just haven't figured out what comes next. And that's part of all of the unrest that we're seeing. So you say that, but then there are other leaders of businesses who are obviously pushing for five days and they, they want to go back to where we were before. Do you think they're just not up to date with what's going on? Or do you think they're trying to hold on to something because of We've talked about real estate costs and all sorts of other things. Or do you think that they genuinely believe that this is actually the, the structure that we've set is the way to do it? I do think that we're going to have individualized um, solutions. I don't think there is any one size fits all solution for all industries right now. It depends on your industry, your company, even your department within your company. And also geographically, there are some areas where uh, people are more likely to uh, want to, to go back into the office. And there's also you know, some demographics uh, for whom either in the office or remote is going to be um, a more of a positive. Um, for, for example, in terms of remote and hybrid work, we know that you get a larger pool of applicants for those kinds of jobs. You have a larger pool that includes more women, more people of color, more people who are uh, physically or otherwise disabled, um, who are able to take advantage of those opportunities. And by the way, you see it in the numbers. If you look starting in April, we had the largest percentage of women participating in the workforce, women of childbearing age, as we say, uh, participating in the workforce historically. And that was April, May, June, every single month. And why do we think that is? It's because you had the opportunity for remote or hybrid work at the same time as you had the rollback of restrictions from COVID, which meant the kids could go back to school or daycare. So, okay. you know, for those people, they right. want remote. For others, young people who are, you know, or people who are crammed in, you know, five to a one bedroom apartment, right? They want right. to get out. And younger people do need to be on the premises to get that Fair kind enough. of mentoring and culture. Joanne, thank you. Appreciate it very, very much. What do we think of four days? What do we think of four? You're raising your hand. Mm -hmm. Longer days. Philosophically, I think it's ludicrous. Yeah, but would, but then who who you don't have to talk. You don't ago. have to twist my arm. I know that. Years ago, the five day it was work seven was days. Crazy. It was seven days. But do you get paid for four? You, you work days. four and get paid for five? It's never going to happen to us because those question. greedy New York Stock Exchange specialists are never going <laughs> to give away their whatever it is. That will never happen. They want to go to twenty four hour trading with us here. Like insane. 
It'll never happen to us. It'll never happen for you at the New York Times either, ever, because news happens, doesn't it? Seven days a week. Seven days a week. But here's the thing. But I this can't, machine. But, but talk me into it. I'm ready to be convinced that four well, days, because I would love three-day weekends. I'll talk you into it, which is that we now have these machines, which, as well, Steve Jobs used to say, are like bicycles but for I don't the mind. Work, I don't want to work at home with and, my machine. I want no, to be no, but off. The, but the point is, if it's a bicycle for your mind, and you can go so much faster than you could on your own. You have to sort of say to yourself at some point that we should be taking advantage of well, that. Number one, I'd rather have a motorized bicycle than just a, a bicycle. Well, these Not things are like electric bikes. These are like, like motorbikes. These are like Porsches for your brain. So you would do for It can you, enhance you everything. Can't, you can't I'm going to work possibly, seven days yeah, a week exactly, for the rest of my life. Exactly. I, take me out of it. But I'm well, that's saying, what I'm But you say you're letting other people work four days? If they, if they like to, sure. They should enjoy You're ready. themselves. You're My ready. version of enjoyment is very different than a lot of other people. I, I know. Do, I you like have a ver- do you have a version of enjoyment? I like to work. Right, I, I enjoy working. All right. you, you'll work four days, no problem. Yeah. I'm, it, look, I, I can understand where You know it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen here. That much I understand. I do understand why other people would like to do that. And if you can stretch, particularly in some industries where you're an hourly worker, if you can stretch it so that you've got four days and you're working 10 hours instead of eight, Oh, that's, that's not what they're saying. Too. They're I, I saying know, a 32 hour. I, I, I know. But the uh, look, I, I think that life is different, as we've talked about. The commute is tough for people. You've got people who can manage their lives differently. And I do think a, a four day, 40 hour. So you think, hour Joanne's right, okay. that we really are going to have a fundamental I think it's re-examination be different different of the work. I, I think it's going to be different for t- different people. We have seen an evolution. I don't think it's going to change as rapidly as it did during the pandemic. But there, yeah. There's no way yeah. I'm doubling my work week to 32 hours. There's no way. That's what I'm going to tell you right now. No way I'm going to work twice as much. It'd be less than twice as much for you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Squawk Pod. We love having you here four days a week, five days, as many as you want to show up. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern or get the best of our TV show right in your ears when you follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen. That's it. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys.